0: Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hi, it's Paddy Heaton from Business of Software conference here. Welcome to the Regenerated Boss podcast. We're back with a bang this week with a fantastic talk by April Dunford. April is an expert marketing practitioner turned executive consultant. Last year she released her first book, Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Product Positioning so your customers get it, buy it, love it. If you haven't read it yet, we thoroughly recommend it. In this talk from Boss USA 2019 April explains why wrong positioning can cost you greatly and what you can do to fix it. Be aware there are some visual elements to this talk, including some excellent cat pictures. You can watch the talk and see the videos at businessofsoftware.org. April will be back for Boss Europe 2020 this March in Cambridge. Check out businesssoftware.eu for more details. Enjoy the talk.
1: Oh, I always wanted to speak at BossCon. This is so exciting. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, We're going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, And what I want to do is I want to spend the next hour, hopefully teaching you something about what I think is one of the most powerful tools we have at our disposal, particularly in startups. And in my experience, and by the way, that experience includes um, seven startups that were successful. Six of them were acquired. That resulted in me working at five big multinational companies. And across all of that, I've launched 16 products into market as an executive. Anyway, across that experience, um, I believe that this is probably the most important thing for you to understand, uh, and it can make the difference between success and failure, not just of the product you're working on, but maybe the whole company, certainly your career. Uh, This is a talk about positioning. uh, One of the most misunderstood concepts in marketing, in startups, in business, in fact, it's so misunderstood that whenever I give a talk about positioning, I have to start by talking to people about what positioning is not. So, positioning is not the same thing as messaging. It's not a tagline, it's not your vision in the market. It's not the same thing as branding. In fact, one of my pet peeves is people will say, "What are you going to talk about today?" and I'll say positioning and they say, "Oh, like you mean brand positioning." I'm like, "No, there's position there's positioning, there's branding. These two things are totally separate things. Um, Some people will say, isn't positioning just the sum total of everything we do in marketing? No, no, it's not that either. In fact, positioning affects a lot of things outside of marketing. So in my opinion, positioning comes first. All these things on this slide flow from positioning, but you gotta figure out your positioning first before you can tackle any of those things. You can think of it a little bit like this. Marketing and sales is the house. Positioning is the foundation upon which the house is built. So I define it this way. Uh, Positioning describes how our product is the best in the world at providing something that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. That's a mouthful, I'll do it again. Positioning defines how our product is the best in the world at providing something that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Put another way, it answers these really fundamental questions. What the heck is this thing, and why should I care? This is super important for startups uh, because this is often the biggest challenge that we have when we have something new. I like to think of it as context setting for products. Um, And context setting is important because context uh, is kind of how we figure out new things. If we encounter something we've never encountered before, we'll often look for clues in the context to what it's all about. Things presented outside of context completely are super hard to understand. So this is an example of something that I encountered once completely with no context, Uh, surfing around on Amazon. And I found this thing, and when I first saw this thing, what I thought it was, was I thought this was a shoe. Yeah, so I thought that Crocs had really doubled down on that whole ugly shoe thing. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they thought, how can we make this even uglier? Oh, I know. We'll, we'll chop the toe off and put this thing on the back and whatever. I even sent a picture of it to my friend. I was like, check out, these freaking ugly shoes are terrible. And then, And then later, I saw it in context, and I realized, oh, that's not what it is at all. And, and so suddenly it became clear what the thing was and what it was good for. What it is, is a dog muzzle. What it's good for is embarrassing your dog in public. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. You know, even a little hint of context can completely change the way we perceive a product. So I show you this dog thing, right? And then I show you this, and you might think, oh, I'm wise to her now. This, she's into dog stuff. This is a dog thing, too. This is like one of those collar things so your dog doesn't, like, bite itself. And if you thought that, you'd be totally wrong because it turns out it's a collar for people. <laughs> and, and and so then you see it in context, and it makes sense that that thing is... The, You put it on and the noodles don't splash on your hair or something. I actually, I don't know, I don't know what it is. But but the marketers, the marketers that took this picture, they give you a little clue about what it's good for, because they put that guy in there. And so what this thing is good for is for making people fall in love with you. I don't think it works, but that's what they want you to believe. Um, The important thing is a shift in context can completely change the way that we perceive a product. Um, So when you look at the research on this, like how do people actually figure out things that they've never encountered before? Um, The research on this is kind of interesting. Basically what it says is customers use what they know to figure out what they don't. So they use what they already understand to figure out things that they don't yet understand. There are two major touch points for this. The first one is market categories. The second one are trends. So market categories are super important because they answer these big questions. What's this thing? Why should I care? Trends are kind of secondary, but they're cool if you can uh, rope them in. And trends answer the big question like, why do I care about this thing right now? So I'm gonna start with market categories because that's the big one and you need to understand that first. um, market categories are mainly important because the markets that we operate in are intensely crowded. All of them. Not just this one I'm showing, but I show this one sometimes when I'm trying to freak people out about how crowded markets are. This is, uh, you may have seen this before. A guy puts this together every year, Scott Brinkler, you know him? He, he builds this thing called the marketing technology landscape. And so if you think of it this way, like if you think about all the software and all the world to solve problems, this is one guy's attempt to bottle just one little corner of that universe, like not accounting software, not ERP, not anything, just marketing and sales stuff. And so here it is. There's... It, it, there's there's 7,000 companies on there. And so you can imagine, you run one of these companies. How the heck are you going to stand out from everything else there? If you're a customer, how does a customer make sense of this and decide what they should pay attention to and what they should not? So market categories in a context like this, which we're all operating in, help us focus down on what's important and what isn't. So let's say I'm a a marketer and I'm looking for a solution like I wanna have live chat on my website. Like I would look at this and you can see Scott's tried to categorize things here first by color, like the orange stuff is content and experience, the yellow stuff is social and relationships. So I might say, hmm, that sounds like social and relationships and oh yeah, sure enough, there's a little box in there that says bots and live chat. Great. So now I'm not looking at 7,000 things anymore. I'm looking at, like, it still kind of sucks. There's, like, a lot in there still, but I've narrowed it down. It's better than it was. Um, so, but that's not all positioning your product in a market category does. So the first thing it does is, yeah, it might help you get on a short list or narrow down the number of competitors. But one of the main things it does is it sets off a really important really important set of assumptions in the minds of your customers about what your product is all about. It works a bit like this. Um, Let's do an experiment. So let's say this is like one of those uh, pitch contests. You ever go to any pitch contests? I hate pitch contests. But, um, or it's one of those TV shows, like you guys have Dragon's Den. No, what do they call it? Shark Tank. In Canada, we call it Dragon's Den. In the UK, it's Dragon's Den. Here, it's Shark Tank. So let's say we're doing Shark Tank, but all I'm allowed to tell you is my market category, that's it, right? Okay, so I get it and I'm like, hello, I'm April, I have this great product, it's a CRM. That's it. So who's my competitor? Salesforce, yeah. Name me a couple of features. Track some accounts, pipeline, CRM stuff, right? Who do I sell to? Vice President of Sales, Head of Sales. That's who you sell a CRM to. Here's a a neat one. What's my price? Ah, it's not going to be more than Salesforce, is it? Right? So I just established the upper bound. There's a leader, can't charge more than that unless there's something really special going on. So here's how this works. If I pick a category for my product and it sets off a chain of assumptions and all those assumptions about my product are true, great. I just saved my marketing and sales team a whole lot of work. I don't have to tell you who my competitor is, it's assumed. I don't have to list every single feature. Half that stuff is table stakes. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it works the same if I do a bad job. So let's say I do a bad job, I pick a market category, it sets off a set of assumptions about my product that are not true. Then my marketing and sales team are gonna have to make a significant effort to undo the damage that my positioning has already done. I'll give you an example of this. I get this call from a VC in the Valley, um, and uh, and they said, oh, we wrote these guys a check. They're fantastic. You should talk to them, though, because they have all these customers that are super, super happy. People love their stuff when they're using it, but their problem is, the first couple of meetings, nobody can figure out what the heck these guys do. So, okay, so we get them on the phone, and I said, hey, what's your story? And they said, well, We're lawyers, ex-lawyers. And what we decided we were gonna build is email for lawyers. My first thought was, jeez, lawyers need their own email? Like, what's up with that? But I'm not a lawyer, thank God. uh, So I don't know, so I'm like, okay. And then they jump into a demo. So they're showing me this demo of this thing, and it's cool. It's got like uh, like an inbox, and there's conversations going on. And I'm like, hey, this thing's pretty neat. How does a calendar work on this thing? And the guy says, "Oh, we don't have a calendar." And I'm like, "What? You don't have a calendar? What, what, what? How does that work? Like, so, but you compete against Gmail and Outlook. How do I replace my Gmail and Outlook? And, and like, can I replace Gmail and Outlook with you guys?" And he's like, "No, we don't have a calendar." <laughs> I'm like, "No wonder nobody can figure out what you do. That doesn't make any sense. You know what you call email without a calendar? <sighs> Shitty email." Like, <laughs> You just don't buy that email. I'm like, what oh, an email without a calendar? So I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So customers love you. I know that because your investor told me. So what, what do customers love so much about you? And they said, oh, we have this thing. We have a patent on it. And they had some name for it, but I forget what it was. But it was, it, it's basically what it was is super secure, context aware file sharing. So. Your lawyer has documents. You want to look at those documents. What it does is they have some AI or something that looks at who's on the documents and whatever. It puts the documents in a super secure place and it decides who needs access to it. It only gives those people access to it. Nobody else can get access to it. It's like magic. That sounds pretty cool. And apparently the lawyers love it. But you know what else? It's just not email, is it? If I wanted to solve that problem, I wouldn't buy email to solve that problem. So what this thing is, in essence, is a pretty cool product masquerading as crappy email. No wonder nobody wants it. So let's do an experiment. Let's pick it up and put it in another market category and see what it looks like. Let's call it team collaboration for lawyers. I didn't change anything. I didn't change the product, I didn't change nothing. Team collaboration for lawyers though, that's how I'm gonna pitch it. Now who's my competitor? It's Slack. It's not Gmail and Outlook, that's cool. What kind of features do I expect it to have? Well, I don't care, you don't have a calendar anymore, do I? No, I don't. Team Collaboration doesn't have that. I do expect you to do file sharing. And because you're Team Collaboration for lawyers, it'd be cool if you had some special kind of file sharing stuff for lawyers, and that's exactly what they've got. So all of a sudden, this thing makes way more sense. The best thing was we had the conversation about pricing. So it, it, email sucks because everybody thinks that email is free. And so whenever they went, got to the pricing stage, people were, you know, they were feeling all this downward pressure on price. Team collaboration's better because you, people pay money for that. You expect to pay money for that. Um, so that was good. And team collaboration for lawyers. So I said we were having this conversation about pricing. And I was like, man, you know what you should do? You just get the lawyers on the phone and when they ask you about pricing, you just lean in there and you say, "Yeah, we built this thing specifically for lawyers, so we're going to charge you by the minute." <laughs> and just let that dangle. And then and then wait for them to say, "But that's not fair." <laughs> and you say, "I know it isn't." Just leave it there. Anyway, so Uh, So if you believe that that's important, how do you do it? Like, how would I know if I'm those folks and I'm trying to decide, am I email or team collaboration? How do I pick? How do I know which one to do? And this vexed me for a long time. Uh, And in fact, uh, when I started out, I I don't have a degree in marketing. I have a degree in systems design engineering from the University of Waterloo. Anybody here from Waterloo? Waterlooers. Um, so they. So uh, it's a fancy tech school in Canada. I'm Canadian. And uh, and and first couple of companies that I worked at, I noticed this pattern. Right? We we did not position deliberately. So we kind of like my lawyers. We we built a thing, and it just was the thing we set out to build. And we never bothered to check in on the positioning until something was gravely wrong. So you know, my my lawyer guys, they're they're like, we're building email. And that's what it is. It's email, right? Until they can't sell any. And then they call the positioning lady. And then they're like, oh, maybe it's something else. This was the repeating pattern in every company I ever worked at. We didn't position deliberately. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, So I worked at a company fairly early in my career. And they're they're a database company. And it was founded by two guys with PhDs in database science. And so they decided to have a startup. And guess what they built? A database, yeah. So they built a database. But it wasn't just any database. They had this patent on this thing. And what it could do is if you wanted to do a query on just a mountain of data, like terabytes, terabytes of data, they could do a certain kind of analytic query really fast. So the first one they sold to was to a bank that was running this query overnight because it took 12 hours to run, but with this database, you could do it in three minutes. Magic. So they sell a few of these things and then uh, I get introduced to them, so they bring me on as the VP marketing. So what I'm gonna do is, you know, sell a whole bunch of this stuff. So I get in and I spin up a bunch of campaigns and we were doing trade shows and all kinds of stuff and I'll tell you, nothing worked. So for two months, nothing. No one opens my email, no one clicks on my ads, no one, like nothing. Worst was, we were doing trade shows and we would set up the booth and people would come to the booth and they'd be like, hey, what do you guys do? And we'd say, oh, we have this super magical database with the super fast queries. And people would literally go, Microsoft has T-shirts. and, I, and just Like no one would even talk to us at the booth. It was totally depressing. And so after a while, I thought, I don't get it. We have this magical database technology. Seems really cool, but nobody wants to talk to us about it. So I decided what I was going to do is go on right along with this VP sales because there's something in there I'm just not understanding. So the VP sales says, fine, I'll set up a bunch of meetings. You come with me. So he sets up seven meetings across five days, and we go, and every single meeting goes exactly the same way. So it goes like this, we come into the meeting, we plug in, customers come in, and it's like chief information officer, database administrators, techie database people, right? They come in, they all sit in the room, and then my sales rep, who's very good by the way, my sales rep gets up and says, hello, thank you for coming, I'm glad you're all here. I'm here to talk to you about this revolutionary, new, amazing, patented database. And everybody in the room does that thing that they do, and they don't want to hear what you have to say. Like, everybody in the room goes like this database. Uh-huh. Look, there's cats. It was like this, we lost everybody in the room. And then, and then he does like this tap dancing thing where he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's a special database, special, special. We have PhDs and patents, and it does the thing 12 hours, three minutes, and he's galloping along, trying to explain why, this th- why they should pay attention to this thing. We have a 60 slide sales deck. We get to slide number four, what happens is the senior person, she puts her hand up, yeah, yeah, just, hey, sorry to interrupt, yeah. That's awesome, that database thing you got, but you know what we don't need around here? We don't need a database. We're Oracle people. We all we have Oracle, that's our standard database. Everybody in this room is certified on Oracle. And you know, it sounds cool that thing you're doing, I'm sure it's cool. They did the, the patents and the PhDs. That's awesome. But what we really want you to do right now is just, you know, get out. <laughs> And they kick us out, and we're on slide four of sixty, and then we're like, okay, you know. And so out we go. And after like three or four of these, I'm in the car with my VP sales. And I'm like, dude, does this happen every time you go into a sales rep? And he says, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like Why are we going to the next one? We should be at home looking for new jobs. (laughs) Because we're all going to die. This is not going to work at all. And so anyway, so but we had the meetings booked, I guess. We're all bummed out, so we're going to do them all. And in this case, we got lucky. And what happened is the very last meeting we had was the sympathy sales call. You know what the sympathy sales call is? That's when your CEO knows a guy who knows a guy that gives you an hour because he feels sorry for you. So we had one of those. Dude comes in the room and he's CIO of a really big insurance company uh, in Canada and, and, and we come and he doesn't bring his team because he's pretty sure this is a waste of time. <laughs> so uh, so we get so we come in the room and we sit down and, and my my rep launches into the thing and the CIO's he's he's super super nice and he lets us go through the whole thing and he's super polite. He's like Canadian. And we go through the whole thing. We get to the very end of the pitch, and we say, so what do you think? What do you think? And the guy says, I love it. I love it. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. It's incredible. We need this. How do we get it in here? It's fantastic. Me and the rep are like, yes, somebody likes our stuff. And the guy says, it's yes. you know, halfway through, I was a little not sure about it. But then all of a sudden, the light came on and I figured out what you were, and I realized you're not a database at all. And we're like, yay, he loves us. What? <laughs> and, and he says, no, you're not a database. He says, hey, you know, I think what you are is like maybe a business intelligence tool, maybe a data warehouse. You're definitely not a database. Now, I had been with the company like two months And even I was so stuck on this idea that we were a database, what else could we be, that my first instinct was to have an argument with him. So I was like, we can't be a business intelligence tool. We do not have reporting. And then we we got in a big fight about it. And we went back and forth. And he says, OK, fine. Maybe you're not a BI tool. But I think you're a data warehouse, maybe a data warehouse. And, and, And I said, no, we're not. And he said, yes, we are. And finally, he got really mad. And he said, look, databases do all kinds of things. What your thing does is just this one little narrow thing, which is analytics. If I really wanted analytics, I would buy a business intelligence tool or a data warehouse or something. And I, like, I, I can't believe it. You're the vice president of marketing. You don't even know what you are. Who gave you that job? <laughs> this is the thing about Canadians. I'll just say it, because I'm a Canadian. I'm allowed to say this, but Canadians, like, everybody thinks Canadians are so nice, right? But they're not. Like, they make like they're so nice. They're all Justin Bieber, Celine Dion, so nice. And then when you least expect it, they sneakily creep up and hit you with something terrible. (laughs) Yeah, like Nickelback. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Later when you're filling out the forms, did you learn something in this session? You say, yes, five stars. (laughs) So importantly, what happened here is, so we had this revelation. Maybe, Maybe the problem is our positioning. So we came back to the office and we had this discussion at the office. Maybe we're not a database, maybe we're a data warehouse. And I'm telling you, that was a hard conversation to have. We were so used to thinking about ourselves. We're database people, we do database stuff. The first thing we tried was, let's just change the pitch and see how that goes. So we changed the pitch. That was it. No, no, not touch product or anything else. We just changed the pitch. And it was completely different meeting in the meetings. We come in and say, hey, we're this revolutionary new. We got a patent and whatever. And we're this this data warehouse for doing these analytic queries. And everybody go, ooh, that sounds cool. At the time, everybody knew what a data warehouse was. Not everybody had one. So we, you know, we had no problem getting through to slide 60 and actually selling some stuff. That was the first thing it changed. But interestingly, it changed everything on the back end, too. It completely changed our roadmap, because we thought about ourselves differently. We were now not trying to build out the best database in the land. We were trying to be a great data warehouse. Different features, different roadmap, different pricing. Databases were a commodity at the time. Data warehouse, you could charge some money for that. We jacked the prices way up, sold more. Um everything changed. The biggest thing was we actually made some money. Um, so that's the first thing is uh, you have to be deliberate about this. So you have to check in and say you know, maybe what we always thought we were is not what we are. Second thing is, if you're going to do positioning, you need to follow a process. So, so again, I, I'm not a marketer by training, so I sort of ended up in marketing. And so, and how I did that was I graduated from engineering. My friend was working at a startup. She put in the word for me. I got a job at a startup. We almost immediately got acquired. About a year later, my boss left, and I was like last woman standing, and they gave me the department. So I'm I'm two years out of engineering school, and I've got 35 people globally, tens of millions of dollars of budget. I can't spell marketing. Like, I have no clue what I'm doing. And so I embarked on this self-study course. Um, so I took a bunch of classes, and I read a bunch of books, and... What I learned there was a lot of good stuff, actually, but we kept coming back to this idea of positioning. This is this thing we got to do first. And this vexed me. I'm like, how do we actually do it? And there didn't seem to be anything. We, we all read this book, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, Reason Trout. You ever read this? is a great book. It's like, it's like 200 pages, and it tells you what positioning is. And, and when you get to the part of how do you do it, you're supposed to call those guys and they'll do it for you because they got an agency or something. So, and, and they work with like Coke or something. They're super expensive. Meanwhile, I'm working at this startup. I don't know how to do this. I'm not calling them. How do we do it? So I took this class um, and, and uh, there was this module in the class where we were gonna learn positioning. And so I'm, I'm at this class in this fancy, Marketing department at Northwestern University, where the fancy marketing people go, and the professor's up there, and he puts this thing up, and he says, "This is how you do it: positioning." Uh, and it's this thing, a positioning statement. You ever done one of these? It's this kind of Mad Libs, fill in the blanks thing, and so you're supposed to just go along and say, you know, for blank, you fill in your target market and what your offering is and your market category and all this stuff and, and that's it, that's your positioning. And so I'm sitting at the back and at, and at that point I had already repositioned two or three different products and you know, one of them being this one that was a database, data warehouse thing and I'm at the back going, whoa, 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 I put my hand up and I'm like, my dude, the, the, the blank there that says market category, how do I do that, like how do I know which one? Because I've already done a bunch of these, and, and you know, we, how do we pick which one's the best one? Go in the blank. How do I fill in the blank? And the guy's this, you know, kind of older guy, professor type, right? And he, he's up at the front, like, kind of like me, I'm like you back there. And he, he did this thing where he did these glasses, and he put his glasses down, he did this whole thing where he's like and he goes, "Trust me, April. You'll just know." <laughs> like nothing in my world has worked like this yet. Like this is going to be the thing and like I'm working at this company full of PhDs. It's not like we're stupid Like we didn't just know you don't just know that's a that's a stupid answer So I decided nobody knows that's it. Nobody knows how to do this. There's this thing. No one knows how to do it But uh, you know, but by now I'm on company number three or four. I'm like I've done this a bunch I could figure this out. So I had this idea. Here's what you're gonna do it, it, like, you know, and this is me applying my engineering thinking here, but I'm like, it's a problem. We'll break it down into piece parts. We'll solve for the piece parts. So I figure you could take positioning. If you look at all the positioning statements in the land, all the positioning statements, the common things are the blanks. So I figured I could split positioning into component pieces, and the component pieces are these five things. So one is, what's my market category? The next, what, what are my competitive alternatives? Next is what are my unique attributes or features, things I've got that competitors don't have? That what's the value that I can deliver to customers because of those features? And then lastly, who are my customer segments? So who are the customers I'm trying to sell to? And that's it. I figured that's it. There's five things. All I got to do is figure out how the best answer for those five things. I got great positioning. Hmm. You think this is easy, right? But the problem is, is once you start looking at this, you realize the five things all have a dependency on each other, something the positioning statement didn't give you any clues about. So all these things relate to each other. I could pick any of them. Let's Let's pick value. The unique value that you can deliver to a customer is completely dependent on what your unique features are. But my unique features are only unique if I compare them to a competitor. My customer segments that I'm targeting, those are the people that care the most about my value. So those things are related. And what's my market category? Your market category is actually the context that I weave around my product that makes my value obvious to those target customers. Ooh, it's hard. This is why nobody figured this out. Because all these things relate to each other. So then the next question is where do I start? and does it matter where I start? So for a long time I thought, it doesn't matter where you start, you're just gonna to have to spiral into it. You, you pick one, you spiral around, and you go. And if you're techie people, you start with features, because that's what you like, and you know that the most. <laughs> so you start with features, then you say well, what value, and blah, 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 and then you circle around. But what I learned after doing this, literally like 9,000 times, is If you start anywhere, you will generally end up with neat positioning that isn't necessarily differentiated. And if you want positioning that wins in a market, you have to show how you're different than everyone else, which means you have to start with competitive alternatives. Once I figured that out, then I was like, oh, this is actually not so bad. We can actually do this. So it actually needs to go in this direction. So you start with competitive alternatives. Then you say, what have I got that they don't have? Those are my unique features. Then I say, ah, those features translate into what value? Once I got the value, I can say, what are the characteristics of a customer that makes them care a lot about my value? That's my customer segmentation. And once I have the customer segmentation, then I can say, what's the best context for this value to make sense to these people? I wrap it together, that's my positioning. Now it sounds easy. There's a 1,000 ways to mess this up, holy cow. Like, and, and I've done all of them. So if the, where you generally mess this up is on step one, competitive alternatives. So I do a lot of work with startups, and they get this one wrong. And how they get it wrong is I'll say, hey, neat little startup with three people. Who's your competitor? And they'll say, oh, we have so much competition. And they'll give me this list, and it'll be like 15 other three-person startups that nobody's ever heard of. These are our competitors. And I'll say, Great, so how are you better than them? And they'll say stuff like, Oh, well, we have way better ease of use. Uh, these folks, would look, to do this thing takes 19 clicks. And to do it with ours, it only takes two. Ease of use is our thing. And then they do the rest of it, right? But then I go talk to their customers and I say, Hey, these kids got hit by a bus next week and you couldn't have that product anymore. What would you do? And they say, uh, oh. do it in a spreadsheet hire an intern. That's one you hear a lot in B2B. I'd just hire an intern to do it. Oh, so if my actual competitive alternative is hire an intern, can I beat hire an intern on ease of use? You know what's really easy to use? Joey, the intern. (laughs) He's great. I'm like, go on out there, get me a coffee. Double, double, that's a Canadian thing. Two, sugar, two sugars, two creams, double, double. You come back, fill out the spreadsheet first. Come back, then, and then we'll talk about what's next. Like, if you get the competitive alternative, wrong, so the competitive alternative actually has to be, if your thing didn't exist, what would folks do? Then you gotta go down the list by that. If you get the first point wrong, then you'll get the rest of it wrong. There's other ways to mess this up. This is actually a little bit more complicated than it looks, but uh, lucky for you and the world, I wrote a whole bunch of notes on how this works, 200 pages of them in fact, and uh, for like the cost of a beer, you can buy what is essentially the thing that took me like 10 years to figure out. What a world. I'll give you a story. So, um, so here's a story about where you can get halfway through that process and mess it up. So, um, I worked at a company, and we were in the enterprise CRM space, and this was years ago. uh, But, and so Salesforce was still kind of small, and they were mainly focused on the low end of the market, small medium businesses, where they were selling. So, the king of enterprise CRM at the time was this big company called Siebel, and uh, you know they were giant and dominating the market completely. And we launched our enterprise CRM, and so not surprisingly, every time we got into a meeting with a customer, the first question we get is like, so how are you better than Siebel? And the answer was, "Uh, we kind of weren't. They had 8,000 employees, we had 30, they had uh, 2 billion revenue, we had uh, 1.3 million (laughs) revenue, they had 400 customers, we had four. And so, but we had two things that we thought made us special. The first was we had this feature that they didn't have. In fact, no CRM on the planet had it. And what it was was the ability to model a many, many relationship between people, not companies. And so every time we did a demo or we talked about our stuff, it was all over our webpage, that was our big thing. We'd show this thing. We could model relationships in a different way. And the problem was nobody, got the value of that. (laughs) So we got the unique feature. We just didn't really think about how it translated into value. So we go into demos, and we show this thing. We're like, hey, we got this cool feature. We're going to show the thing. And the customer would go, what's it good for? And we'd say, anything you want. <laughs> we were hoping eventually a customer would figure it out and so and then, and so they so that, then then we went on, and if they didn't weren't interested in that, then we would move on to the second thing that we, you know made us special is. Basically, we were always just about to not make payroll because we were so broke. And if you asked for a discount, we would happily give you a discount. And so we were the cheapest thing in town. So if you came in and said, oh, I can't afford that, we're like, no problem. We'll drop the price. I don't recommend this at all. It's a really bad way to build a business. This is how we, this is why we never got more than $2 million revenue. Uh, so needless to say, business is not going so good, we're not selling a lot. Uh, one of the big problems we have is we couldn't keep sales reps because the sales reps would come in and not sell anything and then they would leave. And so how we got out of this mess, again, uh, not so much good planning but luck, is uh, we, we hired a new sales rep. And um, at this company, the CEO was kind of a, a character, he was a jerk, he was a jerk. And uh, and he he did this he did this thing if you came in and interviewed for a job he had this interview style where he, so the sales rep prospect walks in and the CEO goes give me one good reason we should hire you for this job you know kind of like this and this sales rep was from New York and so he just gave it right back he he sat down and he said I'll give you one good reason you should hire I, you guys should hire me my buddy is the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs and I'm gonna get you a meeting and we're like sounds good. <laughs> You're hired. So the guy got hired, he gets a meeting at, at Goldman Sachs, and so I decide I'm going to ride along because I like doing that. And, and I also want to see what the, what the office of the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs looks like. It's like this room, basically. <laughs> and so we get in there, and, uh, and so rep goes in, does the demo, and we show the, the thing, our special feature, like we always do. And when he shows the thing, guy gets really excited. And he starts asking a whole bunch of questions. He's like, hey, wait, so do you mean if these two people sit on a board together, I can model that? Yeah. And he's like, these people used to work together, but they don't work together anymore. Yeah, we can do that. He says, oh my gosh, I need some vice presidents. And he runs down the hall, and he comes back with three vice presidents that work for him. And he says, show them the thing, show them the thing. So we show them the thing. And then they get really excited and ask the same questions. They're like, oh, if this person used to be the lawyer at that, and now they're not, and you can model. And we're like, yeah, we can model that. And then they all turn to each other and started speaking their secret banker language. Like, and they're jumping up and down. And me and the rep are over in the corner going, what's going on? Like, <laughs> have you ever been in a room of really excited investment bankers? <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> so, so anyways, then they decided they love the stuff, and they want to have it. And when can we get it in, or whatever, we're all excited. So we're like, hey, maybe investment bankers love our stuff. Let's try this with another investment bank. So we managed to get a meeting with Merrill Lynch. And same thing happens. We walk in, we show them the thing, they jump up and down, we close some business. We're like, this is good. So we did two or three in a row. Importantly, though, we got thinking, maybe we're not enterprise CRM. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're just CRM for investment banks. I thought this was a great idea. Because from a marketing perspective, I was like, look, our biggest problem is we're still getting into head to head battles with Siebel. Nobody knows how we're different than Siebel. If we're CRM, enterprise CRM, we look just like them. If I'm CRM for investment banks, two things will happen. One, I've got a way to maybe run around Siebel. Two, maybe the investment banks would call us instead of us having to go find them. So you know who didn't like this idea? Well, the CEO, he came around, but you know who really didn't like it was the investors. Like, the board hated it. And, and the investors in particular were like, look, we didn't write you this big, juicy check to go be some niche little thing. How many investment banks are there? You're never going to make any money doing that. We wrote you a check to take Siebel out and kill those guys. Now you're telling me you're running away from them? That sucks. And so here's how we convinced them. we, we Two things. So one was... Uh, look, we're not gonna stay in investment banking forever. We're, we're, we're gonna do investment banking, and once we dominate that, we're gonna go out to all the other departments inside the investment bank, because we're already inside. Then we're gonna go to retail banking. Then we're gonna go to insurance. By the time we get to insurance, we're gonna be a great big company. Then we're gonna go take on Siebel. Then we're gonna go kick their butts. The other reason was, you know, and I kept saying this, I was like, Look, it's not like we're giving anything up. We can't sell anything here. We're at like a million revenues. It's not like we're turning down the big business here. So uh, anyway, so we we said, yeah, let's do that. So we did this big shift in positioning. We're CRM for investment banks. That's what we are. And that shift was super transformational to the entire company. The biggest transformation was we never got in a head-to-head battle against Siebel again. So these are the way our sales meetings went. We'd go in, and it used to be we'd go in and they'd say, how are you different than Siebel? Then we'd go in and we'd say, we're, we're CRM for investment banks. And they'd go, hmm, don't you guys compete with Siebel? And we'd say, ah, oh, Siebel, we love those guys. They're fantastic. They're milk so much revenue, so many employees. They're just like the world's greatest general purpose CRM you could possibly have if you're a call center in India or a manufacturing plant or I I don't know, a retailer or something. Not you, Wolf of Wall Street. You need something special. <laughs> Let me show you the thing. And then you know, up and down, you we know, to close the business. And so, yeah. So we went from, so we went from um, 1.2 million when I joined Uh, In the next 18 months, we came in a little under 80 million. We hired so many people, it was bananas. A little under 80 million, and then the best part is the end of the story is uh, Siebel got so sick of us kicking their tail all up and down Wall Street, and then all up and down. We went to London, and then we went to Switzerland, and then we went to whatever. So we're killing it in banking, and they got so mad about that, they came and acquired us for $1.3 billion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and then it was fun because you got to go back to the board and say, "Oh, you guys didn't think we were going to make any money with that nichey, nichey thing. How'd you get that job anyway?" Canadian. (laughs) Canadian. So, uh, so that's market categories. I got one more thing, and this is a quickie. Market categories are the main thing, but this is kind of like a little secret sauce thing. If you can figure out market categories, you got to do that first. But trends are this cool thing that can kind of supercharge your positioning. If you think your positioning is OK, this is a thing you might want to look at. So trends answer the question, why now? So we're really bad in tech at getting confused between market categories and trends. So the way I like to describe it, you ever heard of the, this company um, Pantone, they're like the color people. Every year they put out this press release and they they declare something as the color of the year. And they do this by like magic and looking at, I don't know what, paint or something. And so they put out this press release. So they do it every year. This year they put out a press release and they said, the color of the year this year is living coral. It's pink. Living Coral, and so what happens is they put it at the press release, and 10 minutes later, it, there's, you know, pink pants and pink lipstick and pink couches and pink cushions and stuff. If you make a living coral couch, you're still in the couch business. Your market category is still couches, but you have applied a trend onto that to make that sort of hip and cool and now, and people that want to be hip and now, maybe they're going to buy your couch. Works the same way in tech. So market categories um, are things that you buy. I want to buy a security system or CRM or accounting software. Those things are market categories, categories of things that I buy. Trends are things that can be applied to those market categories that are new and interesting, like artificial intelligence and blockchain technology and machine learning. A few years ago, we were all talking about cloud. the trends are important for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is that one of these trends, these trends start to emerge, and then everybody gets talking about them. And, uh, you know, speakers are speaking about them at conferences, and, and people in the newspapers writing about it, and the trade magazines are writing about it. And so all of a sudden we're all like, ooh, you know, the AI, that's the thing, it's coming, man, and you better know something about it. And then the customers start getting all stressed out, like, uh, I don't know anything about AI, but maybe I should, because it might be disruptive to my business, and I don't want to be left behind. So fundamentally, they aren't the market but they can sure as heck make your your market a lot more interesting for customers that are interested in that topic. Um, It works a little bit like this. Um, You can't ignore market category. You still have to loop in a market category. So I got a product, I'm gonna position it in a market category. If I can loop in a trend, now I've got something that not only is understandable, it's also kinda cool. Now, it's fine to be down here, and I've spent a lot of my professional career marketing things down here that are just fine, like databases and things that have absolutely nothing sexy about them, uh, but we make lots of money. It's just, is it easy to get press? No, and, and do we get invited to speak at the conference? No, we don't, because our stuff's not all that cool and hip and now, but you know, the last database product I worked at that was like this, we did a billion in revenue, just fine. But again, if I can lift it up to the middle, some cool things can happen. So uh, I did some work with this company in the UK called Regate Software, which you know the business of software people know. And if you're from the UK, you know, yeah, Regate. So they're cool. They um, and they're not a small company anymore. They're uh, 300, 400 employees, uh, super profitable. Never raised any VC. Been a thing forever. And what they do is wicked boring. Like it, it's 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 database tools. It it's like backup and recovery and provisioning. It's like so boring. But every single IT department on the planet uses them, they have 800,000 active customers, right? It's a good business, nothing wrong with this. But um, here's how they spiced it up a little. So they had this idea, they had two things actually they were thinking about, so one was, Um, They have a suite of 21 products, and they noticed that when their sales reps called in, they were kind of selling each product individually. Oh, you want backup? We got that. Oh, you want provisioning? We got that. Oh, you want this? We got that. When they analyzed their customer base, um, their average customer used 1.6 of their 21 products, which is crazy because all the individual products are leading in their individual markets. That's the first thing. Second thing, they noticed a trend. So this was a few years back and GDPR was coming up and um, they were getting a lot of questions. Sometimes their reps would call in and they would say, look, we're just doing GDPR this year and all our budgets go into that. We don't have budget for your thing because we're focused on GDPR and that's it. And so they thought, hmm, maybe we better have a story around GDPR. And if we were doing this really good, we'd have a story that brings all the products together. So they splunked around in their customers and talked to them and said, hey, what are you doing in response to GDPR? And they said, we are doing a DevOps transformation. And every single one of their IT groups that they talked to said the same thing. We're spending all our money doing a DevOps transformation. And then when they looked at that, the DevOps transformation never hit data. So who better to figure that out than Redgate? They're the data guys. So they took a look at it and they said, okay, how would our stuff fit in a DevOps transformation? How should you be thinking about data in the middle of DevOps? And they developed a point of view on the market and they named this thing uh, Database DevOps, wrote a big paper on it, started talking about it. Next thing you know, they're getting invited to conferences. Next thing you know, tech press wants to talk to them. Hey, this is cool, this Database DevOps thing. Um, and all of a sudden, their thing that sold just fine, but kind of boring, is now kind of steamy and everybody's kind of excited about it. Two things happened as a result. One, inbound leads increased by 100%, which if you're an established business, that's a lot. Uh, second thing is, um, six months after they rolled this thing out, their reps on average were selling five and a half products into an account versus one. So this is an example of how you can steam this up a little bit. Um, you can mess this up, and people do, by missing the center in a couple different ways. So the one way you miss the center is here. You get so excited about the trend and talking about how it applies to your product that you forget to talk about the market category. So your thing sounds cool, but it's baffling. So my favorite example of this is, I had these guys call me up, and um, it, this was another one where the VC introduced us, except they really didn't want to talk to me because they didn't think they had a problem. But the VC said, oh gosh, no one can understand what these guys do, you should talk to them. And so I got them on the phone. There's, we're doing a Zoom call. There's like 100 of them in the Zoom screen. And I'm in my office in Toronto, and I said, hey, what do you guys do? And they said, what we do is, uh, is sharing economy for pets. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. And they said, oh, it's the sharing economy for pets. Dummy. (laughs) And I was like, I still don't get what it is. And they had this whole deck, and they just kept saying sharing economy for pets over and over again. And I kept saying, look. Are you saying we're sharing the pets? I don't want to share my pet. I have a dog. He's very small. He's not shareable. He's too small to share. And they're like, sharing me. And I'm like, I don't get it. I'm getting frustrated. They're getting frustrated. And eventually, the CEO's there, and the CEO's like, okay, everybody get, get off the Zoom, all you guys. I'm going to talk to this stupid Canadian lady. And he gets in there, and he says, look, I'm going to say it real slow so you understand. What we are is Uber for cats. And I'm like, in my office, I'm like, what does he think that I think when he says that? Like, what does that mean? And then I had this moment where I was, and I, and I was thinking, somebody wrote them a check. Like, there must be some cool stuff in here. And I don't do Uber for cats. And, I was, and then I had this revelation. I was like, oh, Silicon Valley, they've taught the cats how to drive. And I had this. I was like this. And then I was like, no, you guys are good. You don't have a positioning problem. You send the cats to my house. We're fine. And they're like, no, that's not what it is. Uh. And then they're all sad. You know what they actually did? It's a two-sided marketplace for pet services. You want to order up a dog groomer to come to your house, you do it on your phone. The dog groomer comes to our house. So the guy's explaining that to me after I mock him for teaching cats how to drive. Then, he's like, then he explains it to me. And I'm like, why didn't you just say that? And then I was like, you sure you don't get the cats driving? Because <laughs> that's way cooler. Anyways, you don't want to do that. So you, you need to tell me what you are before you loop in the coolness. How people get into that problem is raising money. Because the VC liked that pitch a lot, sharing economy. Just customers I had no idea. Um, the other way you can mess this up is by, by landing on the other side. So, so you're super excited about the market that you're in. You're super excited about the trends you just forgot to relate it to your product whatsoever, which is another way of saying it's just bullshit. Um, But you would think that no one would do this, but this actually happens more than you would think, and even big companies fall into this trap. Uh, my favorite example, did you, do you remember this example? So this is Long Island iced tea. So Long Island iced tea is in the iced tea business. They're publicly traded on the NASDAQ, I don't know why. Um, and the iced tea business isn't doing so well, and so the NASDAQ calls them up and says, look, your share price is going down here, your market cap isn't big enough, we're gonna kick you off the exchange. And uh, you need to get that price up. And so they tried a bunch of things and released some new products. Nothing works. And so they get another call saying, look, you got five days to live. And we're going to kick you off the exchange unless something drastic happens. So they decide they're going to take emergency measures. And what they did was they put out a press release and, and, and put out a press release. So the press release said, we're changing our name. And we're no longer Long Island Ice Tea. We're changing our name to Long Blockchain. Yeah, blockchain. So, uh, so and, and so they put this out, and there's no details. There's no nothing. Like, there's no blockchain strategy. There's no new product. There's no partnership announcements. There's no crypto anything. We just changed the name. And so I see this. I'm in my office. I see this, and I'm like, yeah, nice try, guys. I, you can't just lie. You can't just, you know. That, that'll never work, right? And, of course, it totally works. Like, <laughs> totally works. Like, the thing goes up 400%. And and I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe it works for a day because people are being stupid, but you know, it can't work for more than a couple of days. Three weeks, like every day I bring it up, three weeks, it, you know, the stock's going up, 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 up. It's like 400%, and I'm like, Holy cow, everything I thought was true isn't true. Like, I, I should just tell all my clients, look, just stick some blockchain in there. Like, just stick AI on the end, lie, it's fine, people are stupid, you know? And, and anyways, but eventually what happened is um, the, the, the stock pickers kept calling them and apparently they wouldn't answer the phone. So they, so they kept calling and saying, look, we're here to find out about your blockchain strategy and they just either wouldn't answer or they would answer and they'd be like this, they'd be like, you're breaking up, you're breaking up. Blockchain. (laughs) (laughs) Just hang up, and then, and so eventually, after about three or four weeks, they're like, you know what? There's nothing here. So they all sold, and then all the people that were in it because they thought the iced tea business was cool, they sold too, and the stock went to zero. And I felt better about life, and they got delisted. That's the end of that story. Uh, So you know, so you you want to kind of be right in the middle. Um, So I want to leave you with three things. So one is, you need to position deliberately. That's the first thing. Most folks don't do that. If you even get to that stage, I think you're doing pretty good. Um, If you are going to change your positioning, you need to follow a process and not just try to Mad Libs your way out of that. Um, And the third one is, you can layer on a trend uh, if there's a way to do that, but be careful, because there's bad things that can happen in there. And if you want to send me an email or something, that's my email, and that's it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.